1068, John chapter 5. John chapter 5. And we're going to pick up the, um, the story that we were in last week. And last week we had a, um, we watched Jesus as he went to a, a pool and he found a man who'd been paralysed for 38 years and he said to him, get up and walk. It was a remarkable miracle. Jesus healed this man. But that miracle had much more going on than you might at first see. And what we're going to do today is pick up the story and see what happened after that miracle happened. And the reason this is important is because it would be easy to slip into the habit if we just had the miracles of Jesus to say, oh, Jesus is great. He can go around fixing everyone's problems. He can go around and say, hey, what's your problem? And we can have a therapeutic Jesus who loves to give people what they need. You come to Jesus and he fixes all your problems. And what we're going to see today is that we don't just need therapy from God. We need theology. In other words, we don't just need someone to fix our problems. We need to see God as he truly is. And I warn you to... Well, not warn you. I uh, am excited to share with you that we're going to go pretty deep into the character of God. And if you're back from the student weekend away, it's great to have you here. This is going to challenge you to stay awake. <laughs> I'll do my best to, uh, to, to show you the, the relevance of God's word. You do your best to fight the tiredness and let's go for this together. And let's ask that God would speak to us. Let's pray and then we'll read and then we'll get into this. Father, thank you. Thank you for this precious part of your word. Lord, we don't just want therapy this afternoon. We want theology. We want life-changing, heart-changing truth about who you are. That yes, our deepest needs might be met, but that actually our worship, the worship of our hearts would flow to you. So please meet with us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go from verse 8. We'll pick up the story and then um, we'll go, we're reading through to verse 21. Then Jesus said to him, that's the paralysed man, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who'd been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who'd made him well. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defence, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, 
but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. We're going to leave it there. We saw last week that the miracle happened on a Sabbath. That is Saturday in the Jewish calendar. And the Sabbath was the Jewish day of rest. According to God's law, the Jews were to rest on the seventh day, on the Sabbath day. And Jesus did a miracle on the Sabbath day. And not only did he do that, he then told the man to get up, pick up his mat and walk. Now, according to the rules that the religious leaders have put in place, you weren't allowed to do that. Carrying your mat was work, and you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. And it seems pretty clear from John's account of this story that Jesus knew what he was doing. It wasn't like, oops, sorry, is it a Sabbath? I didn't realise. Jesus knew it was a Sabbath. He knew what he was doing. He deliberately healed the man on a Sabbath because... He was setting up a confrontation. And so this conversation happens. The man is um, met by Jesus and Jesus tells him that sin is his biggest problem. He needs that dealt with. We saw all that last week. And we're really going to pick up from verse 16. Because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. They are really very angry with Jesus for breaking the Sabbath. Now, in fairness to them, the Sabbath was a big deal. According to God, it really mattered. But Jesus, in verse 17, makes his defense. Now, when it's when we talk about defense, normally defense kind of is trying to de-escalate stuff. So here they are coming at Jesus saying, how dare you heal on the Sabbath? You're breaking the Sabbath. And you'd imagine that Jesus' defense is somehow going to ramp things down a bit. There's been a lot of talk of de-escalation. Well, we're expecting Jesus to de-escalate the situation that he's now in. Surely he's going to find a way to say, oh, sorry, I didn't realize it was the Sabbath. Or perhaps he's going to say, no, you've got the understanding of the Sabbath wrong. Actually, what Jesus says massively escalates everything. In fact, what Jesus says is an audacious claim. It is the most audacious claim you could ever imagine. Now, you might not see it at first, but look at verse 17 with me. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Now, You need to see this is very different to how Jesus answers the Sabbath question in other Gospels. In other Gospels, he says, no, you've understood the Sabbath wrong. You've got it wrong. You're doing it wrong. Jesus doesn't do that here. Instead, Jesus does something way more mind-blowing. He starts by saying, my father is always at work. 
My father is always at his work to this very day. Okay, let's, let's push this then. Does God take a Sabbath? Does God rest on the Sabbath day? Which point we go, well, when God first made the world, he rested on the seventh day. On day one, he made light and dark. Day two, he made sky and sea. Day three, he made the birds and the animals. Day four, he made the sun, moon and stars. Day, no, that's all wrong. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Day seven, he rested. He was tired, wasn't he? No, he wasn't tired. But he rested on the seventh day. Why did he rest on the seventh day? He rested to show what the whole goal of creation was about. And it says very clearly in Genesis chapter 2 that God rested from all the work of creating that he had done. What God rested from was his creating work. And when he rested, he was establishing a pattern for human beings to follow. But God didn't rest from all his work on the seventh day. Because he's the sustainer of all things. Jesus says here, God is, my father is always at his work to this very day. You see, God is the great God, creator, sustainer of the universe. We don't believe in a deistic view of God. Deism, sorry, just stick with this. Deism says that, God, that there's some God who made the world, wound it up, and then off it goes. And God sits outside not really doing anything, it just kind of carries on on its own. That is not the view of God in the Bible. The view of God in the Bible is that the God who made the world then is working every single day to sustain and to bring you life. Every day the sun rises. Why do you think it rises? Because God makes it rise. And to those who go, well, the sun doesn't rise, the earth spins. Fine. Who do you think keeps the earth spinning? (laughs) Every breath that I take In our arrogance as human beings, we sort of assume, well, the world will just carry on on its own, won't it? The laws of nature will do it. The Bible says, no, there's a God, a supreme, awesome creator who keeps the whole thing going. And were God to take a day off, were God even to take an hour off, the whole thing would fall apart. Sometimes when we talk about miracles, we say it's when God steps into his universe and does something. Rubbish. A miracle is when God just does something different to what he usually does. He normally comes out of his house and turns right. This day he comes out and turns left. A miracle is God doing something. It's not that God isn't working and then he suddenly shows up. He's always at his work. Always. And As Jesus speaks to the Jews, they would have known that. The Jews know that God is always at his work. So the Sabbath, God doesn't take a Sabbath. He's always at his work. The Sabbath is for humanity. The Sabbath is for human beings. We're to Sabbath because we're not God. We're to rest from our work because we're not sustaining the world. You know what? If you take a day off from your work, 
the universe will still keep going. The earth will still keep spinning. You are not God. And every time you rest from your work, you're saying, I'm not God. Every time you put your head on your pillow to go to sleep, you're saying, I'm not God. Does God sleep? No. He is the God of Israel. He does not slumber nor sleep. I don't know what the difference between those two things is, but he doesn't do either of them. (laughs) Why? Because he's always at his work to this very day. He's God. You're not. So you sleep. Some of you even now. Because you're... (laughs) So here is God who does not have no need for rest and does not Sabbath in this sense. There is a sense in which God Sabbaths. That is, there is a sense in which God rests with his people and delights in his people and loves his people. But he does not Sabbath in this way. So here is Jesus, says, my father's always at his work. And I guess the Jews, I don't know what they would have made of that, not sure. Perhaps they'd have gone, oh, yeah, I suppose so. And then Jesus says these unbelievable words. And I, too, am working. <laughs> Do you not feel the weight of that? Here is his defence, right? His defence is, look, God is God. He's always working. He's not a man who needs to rest. He's God. Yeah, and I'm working. Go figure. <laughs> Can you work it out? It's not a a subtle claim that Jesus is making. Jesus is claiming equality with God. God works on the Sabbath and so do I. How dare you heal on the Sabbath, Jesus? Uh, I, I dare because I'm God. That's his claim. And the Jews absolutely get it. So this was his defense. They were angry with him for the Sabbath. He has not de-escalated anything. He has massively escalated it. Verse 18, for this reason they tried to all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. It's like Jesus ramps up the charges. You just want to get me on Sabbath? I've got much more than that. Now, Let's just be very clear. In one sense, it's very understandable why the Jews would be so upset. You see, one of the central truths of the Bible is that there is one God. And when God gave his people ten commandments, the first commandment he gave them was, you shall have no other gods before me. It is crystal clear that there is one God. One God who made the heavens and the earth. And this God really cares about his godness. If you've got a Bible, just turn to Isaiah. I want to show you a couple of verses. I just want us to get clear the weight of this. Turn to Isaiah 42. It's page 728. Page 728, Isaiah 42. 
Now look at verse 8 with me. I am, this is what God, this is God speaking. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. I will not share my glory with anyone. God says, it is me and only me. So turn over one page. It's important that God's people know this. This is what the Lord says. Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. So here it is, crystal clear in God's Old Testament, his writings, that he says, there is no other God, it's just me. And when people try and challenge God, when people try and rival God, it never goes well. There was a king called Pharaoh in Egypt. He tried to rival God. He tried to proclaim himself to be God. Tried to claim that he had the power. And God would not share his glory with him. And he destroyed him. Well, there was a king called Nebuchadnezzar. Just don't worry about turning to this, but just listen to what Nebuchadnezzar said. So this is in Daniel chapter 4. Listen to this. He was the king of Babylon. And it says this, 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Is this not for my glory? And God says, no. No, it's not. God will not share his glory with another. And when a human being has the audacity to claim equality with God, they immediately are punished. That is what the Jews know. And then along comes a 30-year-old carpenter from Nazareth. Performs a miracle and then says, you know how God works on the Sabbath? Yeah, I do. He claims to be equal with God. And suddenly, the Jews can see the problem. You see, what if there's a rivalry now? There's God and there's this new one who's come, this new kid on the block, this rival to God himself. Jesus is claiming equality with God. That's why what Jesus says next is so important. Because what Jesus is now going to explain is how can it be that there is one God and that he, as this man, Jesus, can claim to be God and not be a rival to God. That's why Jesus starts to talk about the Father and the Son. And this audacious claim that Jesus makes is followed up with this beautiful relationship between the Father and the Son. Jesus says, I'm not a rival to God. I'm not a challenger. I'm not coming audaciously claiming to be against God. Jesus comes and says, I'm his Son. <laughs> I'm his Son. 
And in verse 19, Jesus talks about the relationship between the Son and the Father. And then in verse 20, he talks about the relationship between the Father and the Son. So we need to understand first, what do we learn about the Son relating to the Father? And then what about the Father relating to the Son? And I told you, this is challenging. There is mystery here. God, the infinite, eternal God, is vast and extraordinary. But he has told us some stuff, and it's, worth, and it's important for us to have a go at understanding it. And it, we could sh- shrug our shoulders and say, oh, well, who knows, it's God, it's all mystery. Well, no, it's, God's told us some stuff. We won't get it all, but we'll get some. And God's greatest desire for you is not just to fix all your problems, but that you know him as he truly is. So let's have a look. What do we learn about this father-son relationship? So absolutely, there's one God. He will not share his glory with another. But now we begin to discover that this one God is father and son. And for those who are, want the full picture, he's also spirit. But he doesn't come in until a little bit late. We, we learn about him later in John. It's enough to get our heads around father and son for the time being. So let's have a look. What does Jesus say? In verse 19, as he talks about the Father and the Son, Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Okay, this is, this is challenging. Here is the relationship. Here is how Jesus describes his relationship to God, his Father. He's saying, I am God. That's why I can work on the Sabbath. I'm God, the Son. And there's God, the Father, but we're not two gods, we're one. And we discover that Jesus is not an independent being who runs around going, I'm going to do whatever I want. Instead, and this is some technical language for you all, in order to stretch us all, instead there is inseparable operations. That is, the Father and the Son do not work independently of one another, but instead work absolutely inseparably. Such that the Son can say, I don't do anything on my own. Everything Jesus does is the work of the Father. Those two things go together and you you can't split them up. You can't divide them. So the idea that they might be rivals is ridiculous. Jesus is never going to stomp around saying, is this not the great Babylon that I built for the might of my glory? Jesus is going to walk around saying, him, Father, it's for you. I love you. I've done it for you. Here is not a rival who's seeking to establish his own kingdom. Here is a son whose greatest joy is to do the will of his father. And Jesus, the the, the language is very strong. It's not that most of the stuff I do is kind of my father's work. I've got a bit on the side, which is my own. 
It's been interesting, isn't it, with all the kind of Harry and Meghan stuff. This idea of wanting to go and do my own thing, wanting to go and be my own person. I don't want to be constrained by all this stuff. I'm my own person, don't you know? I'm going to go and move somewhere else and do my own thing. That's a very human way to speak. But here is Jesus, who doesn't look at his father and go, oh, you're so annoying. Why do I have to be part of your family? Instead, he looks at the father and says, I I just want to do whatever pleases you. They work together. I'm making no comment on Mexit. It's, uh, It's just... But it does make you see how beautiful this is. A relationship like this. A relationship of sheer joy. So the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what his father does. And whatever the father does, the son also does. So everything the son is doing is the father's work. And everything the father does is what the son does. They are absolutely inseparable. This is what God is like. This is Jesus. So that's the son and his response to his father. He depends, he needs, he obeys, he submits, he joyfully does the will of his father, works with his father. But now look at verse 20. And, and, okay, verse 20, this is amazing. Look at the relationship of the, now for the father, for the son. The son says, I do all the work of my father. I do nothing except the work of my father. Now look at the verse 24. Why does the son do this? Well, because the father loves the son and shows him all he does. So you have this incredible relationship of God the father who looks at his son with sheer joy and perfect delight. He loves him. And therefore, he shows him all he does. There is a complete openness. This isn't like the, the master who kind of keeps some secrets hidden in order to keep control over their junior. You know, when you take someone on junior, you don't tell them all the secrets straight up, do you? Because you've got to keep some power so that you can still demonstrate that you are still the boss. <laughs> so you give people a little bit of power a little bit of rope to run around on, but you make sure you hold things so that you've got ultimate power. Here is the father who so loves the son, he shows him everything he's done. And it's love that does this. Which means that as Jesus works, you can be absolutely sure that he's doing everything the Father wants him to. You know when you get those emails and at the bottom there's those disclaimers that says, you know, this is intended for the, if you're not the intended recipient of this email. And I always go, well, you, I mean, you put the address in. I mean, I am the intended, it's come to me. <laughs> but then it says, any views that may be expressed in this do not represent the views of the, everybody else. Jesus never has to put that at the bottom of his emails. <laughs> that was a long way of not really helping anyone. But Jesus never has to say, look, the views I'm expressing are my views. They may not be my father's views. I'm just not sure. 
Jesus never needs that disclaimer. In fact, Jesus just says, what I say is exactly what the Father says, and what I do is exactly what the Father does, and where I go is exactly where the Father wants me to go, and every word I speak is exactly the words my Father wants me to speak. It's all him. (laughs) Which is what makes Jesus so utterly spectacular. Now remember, this is in the context of the Jewish leaders who are upset about him healing a bloke on the Sabbath. They've forgotten the Sabbath now. Now they're just going, what? The claims that Jesus is making here are breathtaking. And then he says at the end of verse 20, yes, and he'll show him even greater works than these so that you'll be amazed. Isn't that tantalizing? (laughs) You're impressed because I healed a man by the pool? You're impressed I fixed his legs? Oh, man. There are much greater works coming. And the greater works that the Father has shown the Son, the greater works that the Father so loves the Son, is that the Son is going to be the one through whom the Father saves the world. It doesn't get greater than that. That through this Son, God the Father will save all of the world. As this son goes to a cross to die as the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Now this, this really is profoundly important. Now you, you may not see this yet, but it really matters. And it matters because it tells us that the father loves the son and every work that the father sends the son to do is because the father loves the son. Here's my question. Why did Jesus die on a cross? Why did Jesus have nails driven through his hands and his feet and a crown of thorns plunged onto his head? Why did Jesus die in agony and despair? Why? My guess is, if I'd asked you that just before you walked in, you'd have said, well, because he loves us. Because he loves me, because God the Father loves me and wanted to save me, and so he sent his son to a cross. And that's true. (laughs) That's wonderfully true. But if you're even vaguely half awake still, can you see that the reason Jesus went to a cross is because the Father loves him? It was the Father's love for his son that sent him to a cross. Not just the Father's love for the world, but the Father's... I told you this was hard, but it's, it's so important. I'm going to show you in a minute why it's important. It's the Father's love for the Son that means he honours the Son by entrusting Jesus with the work of dying to save the world. It is not that God was sat in heaven saying, oh man, I don't know what to do. I love the world. I love my son. Which one should I choose? And I've heard illustrations like that. You know, here's a a driver of a train and the runaway train is running out of control and the driver's driving his train. He doesn't know what to do and then he sees one place where he can go off and, and there's safety. The track's broken up there but here's a siding where he's safe but then he sees his son is standing in the middle of the track and he has to make a choice. Will he kill his son and save the people or will he save his son and kill the people? And what does the father do? And he chooses to kill his son and save the people. 
It's wrong. <laughs> That's wrong. And it's wrong because Jesus is not some innocent little son standing in the way. He's the beloved son of God, who God, Father, Son and Spirit, their inseparable operations was to save the world. Now the reason that this is important, and I want to land this and, and, and try and to see why, why this matters. It matters because we must never drive a wedge between Jesus and his Father. It, it matters, so what? You don't set the Father and Son against each other. And there are ways that we can do this. Where we sort of have a view of God the Father as being kind of an angry judge. And then here comes superhero Jesus to stand in the way and sort of save the day and say, it's okay, I'm here. And we go, oh, Jesus, yay, love Jesus. Saves us from the nasty, mean God. Now, I know we never put it like that, but we can think like that. And we can somehow sort of prefer the son to the father. We relate to him because he's sort of like us and we get it. And yet Jesus says, yeah, but everything I do is just what the Father does. Don't love me more than my Father. Everything I do is the same as my Father. Now this is why, and I, and I, 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 do, I, I do want to, I, I hope you don't be offended by this, but I think it is important. Um, it is important that from time to time I warn you of things where people teach stuff that's wrong and particularly where those people are near. At Waterloo, there's a church called Oasis where Steve Chalk is the pastor. And Steve Chalk teaches that at the cross, Jesus did not die to take the punishment for human sin. In fact, Steve Chalk says that would be cosmic child abuse. That's how he pictures it. An angry God vindictively punishing his son to save people. And so Steve Chalk will say that is not what it is at all. God is love and he just forgives us and it's all fine and everyone's going to go to heaven anyway. It's because he doesn't understand John 5. What the son does, the father does. Not cosmic child abuse. In fact, it is the Father and the Son together saving the world. And the Father saying, my precious Son, I love you. I entrust salvation to you. And Jesus saying to his Father, I will do whatever you say. I will save the world as we together have planned. It is our plan to save the world. That is why this really matters. Now, I do not say that to, to, to stir up trouble or to cause division. But part of my job as a pastor is to, is to say, look, there are things that are being taught that are wrong. And we must see that. And it breaks my heart. Because it means you don't know God as he truly is. But the second implication is that you know your security rests 
in the Father's love for the Son. And with this we'll finish. You see, if God loves me because of how lovely I am, that's quite worrying (laughs) on the days when I'm not very lovely. Right? If God's love is all about me, that makes me quite nervous. But what if God lo- my security rests not in God's love for me, but in God's love, the Father's love for his Son. The Father says to the Son, Son, I love you so much that together we are going to save this world. And the cross is that moment, yes, of agony. I'm not underplaying that it costs God to send his Son to a cross to die, of course. But... There is love in that relationship. And it wasn't at that moment that the father said, right, son, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to stop loving you for a second in order I can love these people. No, instead, he said, son, I so love you that you will be the means and you will get the glory and all people will worship you. Which means that I'm saved because the father loves the son. And you are saved Because the Father loves the Son. Which means that the only way that you could not be saved is if the Father stopped loving the Son. If the Father one day woke up and said, actually Jesus, I've changed my mind about all this. I'm not sure this was a great plan. Let's not do this anymore. Suddenly you've got no security. But that's never going to happen. The Father will always love his Son. Which means you will always be safe. Now, this is stretching. And we're going to do this, this is why we're doing this slowly over the next four weeks. We're going to work our way through what what Jesus says next. We're going to see more and more of this. We're going to see more and more of the inseparable operations of the Father and the Son, this perfect relationship that exists. This one God, Father and Son, this beautiful relationship of love between them. And we're going to discover that our security sits there. So if you feel nervous about your relationship with God, if you're not sure if God loves you, my question for you is, do you think God loves the Son? Do you think the Father loves the Son? Because if the Father loves the Son, then he loves you. So let's worship Let's worship him. And this isn't a sermon where there's a list of ten things to go and do. This isn't a sermon where there's a kind of, okay, so now stop uh, eating Cocoa Pops for breakfast. That's not one of those sermons. <laughs> not many are. This is a sermon where you go away saying, Father, I want to know you more. With Jesus, I want to worship you. I want to celebrate and thank you for all that you are. So Jesus, equal with God, Father and Son, not a rival, but the perfect Son. Why don't we bow our heads and worship him and then we're going to sing and we're going to celebrate all that he's done. Let's bow our heads.
the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you sent your Son, Jesus. Jesus, equal with God. Jesus, obedient to the Father. Jesus, the one through whom you have done the greatest work. Father, we worship you and we don't understand all this. But we want to be those who humble ourselves before you and say, Lord Jesus, please be our God and our King. Lord Jesus, we put all our hope in you. Lord Jesus, we trust you. Father, thank you for showing us these things. Help us as we wrestle with them in Jesus' name. Amen.